Good morning, Heartland. How are we doing today? Well, uh, as good Kansans, you know the, the story of the Wizard of Oz, don't you? Yes, of course you do. Uh, if there's a hero to this film classic in the story of the Wizard of Oz, if there's a hero, it's not Dorothy. It's certainly not the Wizard of Oz. It's not any of the friends that, Hor that Dorothy gathers on their way down the yellow brick road, and uh, it's not Glinda the Good Witch. If there's a hero in the story of the Wizard of Oz, it's Toto. The dog. Because uh, this entire movie is focused on one person in all of Oz who has the power to get Dorothy home, the supposed wizard. And at the end of this movie, when they get to the castle, Toto is the only one who has the, sense, the, the ability, the courage to pull the curtain back and to reveal that the wizard that they'd set their hopes on was really nothing more than an old man behind a curtain. That in the words of the scarecrow, he was a humbug, that he had a microphone and a bunch of levers just blowing smoke and deceiving everyone in the land of Oz that he was as powerful as he said he was until Toto pulls the curtain and reveals the truth. See, without Toto, Dorothy and her friends would have never discovered what was real and Dorothy would have never gotten home. So we are in the second week of our series called Is God? And each week of this series, we're looking at the statements that God makes about himself in the, in the scriptures. And we're asking, really? Is God really the things that he tells us that he is? Because God makes lots of statements about himself that he's real, that he's in control. He tells us that he's powerful and he's loving. He tells us that he's personal. But how do we know that God isn't just an old man behind a curtain? blowing smoke and pulling levers and making up lies. Because let's be honest, and if you're new to Heartland, you need to know honesty is something that we try to have a lot of around here. Whether you're new to faith or you've been around faith in a while, let's be honest. There are things that happen in our lives and there are things that happen in the world that make it hard to believe that God is the things that he tells us in the Bible that he is. And what we do with these inconsistencies matter. Because really, when we experience things in our lives that, that seem to suggest that God isn't who he says he is, we have a couple of options, a couple of tendencies. The first thing is we just brush off those inconsistencies. We experience something that, that suggests maybe God's not as in control as he says he is. Um, but we go, well, God says he is, so I'm just going to believe he is. And we just brush off those, those inconsistencies. Now, to do, to do that seems like it's a, it's a noble faith, but it really is just a naive and a wishful faith. And what we've learned about faith is it doesn't have to be blind to be faith. And so instead of maybe just brushing off those inconsistencies, our other tendency is we brush off God. We say, well, God said that he was, you know, for example, in control, doesn't feel like he's in control, so he must not actually be in control. Or even worse, there must just not be a God. Because my experience in life contradicts what God says about himself. But this series is meant to show us a better way. That we don't have to brush off the inconsistencies that we experience. We don't have to brush off God and the claims that he makes. What this series is showing us is that we can do what Toto did. We can pull the curtain back on God and we can pull the curtain back on the things that he says about himself to see what's really there. Because if God really is God, then he can handle the scrutiny. And so last week, Dan kicked us off by asking the question, is God 
real. And for the rest of this series, we're going to go a step further to ask if God is real, well then is he the things that he said he is? What kind of God is he? And so this week we're asking a question that you and I ask all the time about God. And not a week goes by that you don't ask this question in some form, even though you may not realize you do. But the question that we're asking this week is, is God just? Is God just? Now, you just take this word just. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of the word just. I'll tell you what comes to mind. Uh, uh, A lot of you aren't going to like this example. Uh, but I need you to go with me. I need you to go with me all the way back to October 26th, 1985. It was game six of the World Series when the St. Louis Cardinals were a half an inning away from the championship over the Royals. I was a six-year-old wearing my Ozzy Smith t-shirt, sitting in the living room of my parents' house in St. Louis. The Cardinals took the field in the ninth inning with a one-nothing lead to the bottom of the ninth when Royals pinch hitter George Orta hit a chopper that was tossed to first base a half a step ahead of Orta. And in that moment, umpire Don Denkinger, a name that would go down in all of Cardinals history, (laughs) rendered his verdict. The Royals' Orta was safe. The Cardinals couldn't believe it. The Cardinals sports fans couldn't believe it. Every sports fan that wasn't a Royals fan couldn't believe it. The managers and the broadcasters couldn't believe it. Even the other umpires couldn't believe it. After the game, which the Royals would go on to win on their way to the championship, when the umpire Don Denkinger, uh, who made the call, when he saw the replay, when it was too late, even he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that he got the call wrong. Now, whether you believe Don Dengager got the call wrong or not, there are games that you and I watch where the referees and the umpires got it wrong and your team suffered the blow for it. But just forget sports. (laughs) I raise this up for a couple reasons. Uh, One is we cry for justice when it works in our favor. We don't cry for it when it won't. But here's the other big reason, the really important reason I bring it up, is because there are situations in your life when someone in power got the call wrong and you suffered the blow for it. Maybe it was a boss who made the wrong pick between you and a coworker and your career took the hit. Maybe it was a teacher who uh, grades you or treats you more harshly than the other students in the class. Maybe it was the speeding ticket that you got going down Black Bob on a Wednesday afternoon when you're just trying to pick up your kids from school and there was 12 other cars that were going faster than you, but you were the one that got pulled over. When things like these things happen, like angry sports fans, we can't believe it. We yell, we raise our hands, we hold our gloves up in the air like Todd Worrell from the Cardinals. We yell, that's not right, that's not fair, because that's what it means to be just, isn't it? To be right and to be fair. And we wanna know, you wanna know, That if God is God, and if God is powerful, can we trust him to be just in your life and in the world? 
That's the question we're wrestling with today. Can we trust God to be just? And what does the Bible say? What are the very claims that we're pulling the curtain back on? Well, there's a lot of them because God wants us to know that he is just. So if we go back into the Old Testament, here's some verses for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Or righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. If we jump over to the New Testament, we see the same thing. God does not show favoritism. Or if we look into the book of Hebrews, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him. The Bible wants us to know that God is just, but is he really? But let's ask this question. When the Bible uses the word just, we have our idea of what it means. Let's make sure we know what the Bible means when it says that God is just. And so if we go back into the Old Testament, there's really really no singular word in the Hebrew for just. It's coming from a couple of different Hebrew words that get translated in different passages as to be just or justice. The first Hebrew word is the word sadiq, which means righteous or lawful. Some of these verses that we looked at, the Hebrew word was sadiq. The other word in the Hebrew is mishpat, which means equitable. And when we read the word just or justice in the scriptures, it might be one of these words behind it. But what it tells us is that for God to be just, it means that he is righteous and lawful and he is equitable. Now, this matters because if there's no consistency with God's justice, then he's really no different from the erratic gods of Greek mythology that were popular in the, in the days of the Bible, Right? He's no different than the Egyptian gods. Because, in fact, if you wanted to create a religion that would explain all of the injustice in the world, then the most believable thing to do would be to create a bunch of unjust gods who can't get along with one another. And the fact that they are defined by their own injustice would explain why we have so much injustice in our world. And that's what makes Christianity, it's what makes the Judeo-Christian faith and worldview so different from every other religion especially in the time when the Bible, that we read about in the Bible. It tells us that the God behind the unjustness of the world isn't an unjust God, but the God behind our unjust world is a just one. Now, as I say that, we think to ourselves, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would we have so much injustice in our world when there's an unjust God, when there's a just God? Why would there be so much evil in our world when there's a just God? Why is it that there would be so much evil that nobody's doing anything about if there's a just God? And so if we have trouble believing this, it makes sense. Can we really believe that there's a just God behind it all? What do we do with that? That's our predicament. What we do is we do what Toto did. We pull the curtain back on God and these claims to see if he really is as just as he says he is. And to help us, there's a small book of the Bible that's written entirely about injustice. It's a small book that we find in the Old Testament written by a guy who had the courage to pull the curtain back on God. And the guy's name is Habakkuk. And this book is just three chapters of Habakkuk and God in this, in this back and forth dialogue. And it begins with Habakkuk coming right out of the gate, full of anger and fury and confusion, bringing his questions to God. And here's how Habakkuk starts right at the beginning of chapter one of his book. He says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Do you you see all of these questions that Habakkuk's asking God? 
And in fact, these, these aren't just questions. He's, at, he's, saying, he's saying, why aren't you listening, God? Why aren't you saving? Why are you tolerating injustice? Why aren't you doing the things that you said you'd do and avenging the evil that you say you hate? But these aren't just questions. They're actually a lot more than questions. They're complaints to God. In fact, this is the first thing that when we, when we see Habakkuk, pull the curtain back on God and his justice. The first thing that we see is that God hears your complaints. God hears your complaints. Habakkuk doesn't just bring to him questions. He doesn't even just bring to him complaints. He brings charges against God. This is, this is, this is Habakkuk calling God out. In fact, in verse 12, deeper into chapter one, Habakkuk even says to God, are you not from everlasting this is, this is like Habakkuk standing on the front porch of God's house saying, come on out here and defend yourself. You tell us you're from everlasting. Aren't you not everlasting? Explain yourself. Now, when you are dealing with the God of the universe, this is dangerous territory. But here's the thing. That's how at the end of his rope Habakkuk is. This is why I love Habakkuk. Because some of the biggest complaints and charges against God are found in this book that we call the Word of God. That the Bible even puts words and feelings to some of the things that we feel going through this world. And so if you've ever felt afraid of bringing your complaints to God, Habakkuk shows us, bring them. And it makes me wonder, when's the last time that you were ruthfully honest with God? When's the last time that you were ruthfully honest that some of the things he tells you he is don't really feel like he is those things? When's the last time that you cried out to God to explain himself, to be the just God that he apparently says that he is? Maybe it's the anger that you felt about the unjust boss who gets ahead at your expense. Or maybe it's the confusion of a marriage that ended but it wasn't your fault. Maybe it was the devastation of infertility that you never asked for, that was made worse by all of your friends getting pregnant around you. Maybe it's the temptation that you deal with in your own life, but you don't see others dealing with it in theirs. Maybe it's the helplessness you felt when disease took the life of your child or your loved one too soon. We think, God, if you were really God, if you were really a just God, this wouldn't have happened, right? And that's what Habakkuk does. But God doesn't smite him. God responds to him. God welcomes our complaints and objections. In fact, Habakkuk isn't done objecting to God. If we read further in chapter one, Habakkuk says, destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now, what's happening here is Habakkuk is writing this. Let's get a sense of kind of what's going on around him. It's about 600 years before Jesus is on the earth. And Habakkuk is living in the, in the southern area of Israel's kingdom by the name of, of Judah. And Habakkuk is grieved that the people of Israel are denying God. They've turned their backs on God. And they've turned their backs on one another. Their way of life, their entire society has been, has been defined by, by uh, uh, turning their backs on God and taking advantage, being unjust with one another. Now, you would expect a just God to do something about that. And God has said that he, that he will, that he would. What's happening right now is that the, the armies of Babylon are threatening to move in. And this is one of the ways at this time that, that God would kind of get the attention of his people when they weren't fulfilling their end of their covenant with him. 
But Habakkuk, he might understand that, but he, what he doesn't understand is, he says, the Babylonians, he says, they're even more unjust and corrupt than we are. So how can you allow them to come in here and enslave us and prosper at our expense, God? That doesn't make any sense. See, that's the big question. The first thing that Habakkuk sees is that God hears your complaints, but then God responds because he wants us to see that not only does he hear your complaints, God also wants you to see that he's in control. This uh, past week, we celebrated the 22nd anniversary of the attack on the, the Twin Towers. And if you go back, you remember where you were when you found out about that. I also remember that that week, our churches were filled with people all asking the same question. Is God really in control? Now, we're going to devote an entire week to this later on in our series. But if he does, if he is really in control, why do planes fly into buildings that are filled with innocent people? We're going to answer those questions a little bit later. But this fits in our conversation about justice. Because God answers Habakkuk's complaint for justice. And, and here's what God responds to Habakkuk. It says, the Lord then replied, write down this revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. And then here's this key verse right here. Though it linger, God says, wait for it. And it will certainly come and not delay. God says, though it, speaking of his justice, though it linger, Wait for it. You know what that is, right? That's patience. When God tells us to wait for it, he's inviting us into the difficult task of patience. And we often, so often, let our impatience shape our understanding of God's character, don't we? God says he's just. I don't see him being just, so he must not be just. And God is saying, hold, wait for it. Though it linger, don't make that conclusion. Here's what uh, the late author, Pastor Tim Keller, says about patience. I think this is so important. He says, patience is a deliberate laying down of the burden of assumed omniscience. It's the deliberate laying down of the burden of assumed omniscience. Basically, patience is, is admitting to ourselves we're not God, is what Tim Keller is saying. In other words, we're trusting that God has a perspective that we don't. That's why God said, that's why Habakkuk says, you know what? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. That, that even though that it's to say that I refuse to believe that I know what God knows. I refuse to assume that I know what's best. And I lay that burden down. And to help me do this, to help me cultivate this patience, I'm going to gain a new perspective. I'm going to go up to the ramparts. Now, I didn't realize I knew that word until I, I learned that I was singing that word before every sporting event. And the 4th of July, the, or the ramparts we watched. And I was like, oh, I'm singing things I don't understand. <laughs> we do it a lot in church. We do it a lot for our country, apparently. <laughs> or the ramparts. The ramparts were, were the highest point within, within some form of a, of a refuge. That the ramparts are the highest wall of a fortress. It's where someone would go up to, to scan the horizon. It's the high up place that you go to for perspective. See, our biggest challenge with patience is not time. It's perspective. When Habakkuk pulls the curtain back on God, he gains new perspective because God gives him a glimpse of what he's up to. 
and what he's up to. This is the third thing that we see. When we pull the curtain back on God, Habakkuk sees that God will make things right. That God's justice happens in a, in a timing that, that is different from our own. See, Habakkuk sees that God hasn't given up on justice, but God does have a different standard for justice and a different timing for justice than Habakkuk does. Now, this is a recurring theme that, that we're going to explore during this whole series. It's a recurring theme about our concept of God. Listen to how C.S. Lewis, professor in Oxford at Cambridge during the last century, explained this. He wrote, if human life is in fact ordered by a beneficent being whose knowledge of our real needs and the way in which they can be satisfied infinitely exceeds our own, we must expect a priori that his operations will often appear to us far from beneficent and far from wise, and that it will be our highest prudence to give him our confidence in spite of this. What the heck is he saying? <laughs> I've never used the words a priori in my life. What he's saying is that if God is really God, then his ways won't necessarily look like the ways we want them to look. That if God is really God, who knows more than we do, then we should expect his, that his ways won't always seem good to us. But because he's a good God, we can have faith. This is what God tells Habakkuk to do in chapter 3, verse 2. God says, see the enemy, speaking of the Babylonians, see Habakkuk, the enemy, they're puffed up. And their desires, they are not upright, but the righteous person, Habakkuk. But you live by faithfulness. See, what it takes to hold on to our concept of God is indeed faith. Now, um, one of the things from the message last week is that it's impossible to sufficiently prove the existence of God. It's totally impossible. If you're trying to prove the existence of God, stop, it won't work. It's also impossible to su sufficiently disprove the existence of God. And so if you're trying to do everything you can to disprove the existence of God, you can't do it, it won't work. We are required to have faith either way. You're either gonna have faith that there is a God or you're gonna have faith that there isn't a God. Faith is not a question. But what do you build your faith on? That's the question. And so what we're left to do is we're left to consider the evidence like Dan talked about last week and to, to make our decision based on the evidence that we have that would suggest to us that God is there or God is not, that God is just or God is not. not. And so maybe for you, the, the evidence might be looking back in your life and seeing the evidence of God's uh, justice activity or just activity at all in your life. That might be some evidence for you to work with. It might be you hearing stories from other people about God's activity in their lives, and that gives you some evidence to work with. It could be the evidence of these words in these scriptures that God has given us to consider. And so to help Habakkuk have faith, because God is not asking Habakkuk to have blind faith. He's not just saying, Habakkuk, will you sit in your corner and just stop and just wait? I'm gonna take care of this, okay? That's not what God's doing. God helps him have faith. In fact, in this, in this chapter, God issues these warnings. We call them woes. Like if anyone says woe to you, probably doesn't happen a lot. They're saying like, hey, watch, watch out. And so to help Habakkuk's faith, God issues these woes against the Babylonians. He says, he says hey, woe to him who piles up stolen goods. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. 
Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Woe to him who gives a drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin until they're drunk so that he can take advantage of them. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. In other words, saying, trying to create gods out of inanimate objects. God is saying, hey, hey, Babylonians, watch out. Because though you may be prospering for a little bit right now, you won't forever. And then after this series of warnings, God says one more thing. This is the last thing we hear from God in the book of Habakkuk. He says, the Lord is holy, is in his holy temple. So let all of the earth be silent before him. The Lord is holy in his temple. So let all of the earth be silent before him. I love that this isn't the first thing God says to Habakkuk. He didn't respond to Habakkuk's complaints and charges by saying, would you just be silent and trust me? Would you just be silent before me, Habakkuk? No, God meets Habakkuk in those complaints. He finds him in those charges. And then because he does, because he has this dialogue, this conversation with, with Habakkuk, something in Habakkuk changes. Now, put that verse back up, now has the ability, Habakkuk has the ability to be this. Because Habakkuk is no longer the complaining individual at the beginning of this, of this book. Now he is content. His contentness, is, it's not him dismissing all of his, the, the injustice around him. It's not him, him forgetting about his cries for justice in his life and his, this world. No, he is, he is a different person than he was at the beginning of this letter because he is content, because this is what happens when we pull the curtain back. We can become content. It's, it's Habakkuk trusting that God will bring the justice that he said he will bring. In fact, the rest of this book, the whole rest of chapter three is Habakkuk's song of faith in God. He actually goes from this, this why God, what are you up to, what are you doing, now to praising God just a couple chapters later. And it just shows us that even, even when our hearts are weighed down by the injustice and the evil around us, we can still, because God has pulled the curtain back, we still can worship him. And I just want you to hear these words that Habakkuk pens that become actually a song of praise for the whole people of Israel. Habakkuk writes, and just let these words kind of be heard in your heart. Habakkuk says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And then he writes, the sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to tread on the heights. And then there's one last little verse for the director of music on stringed instruments. Because even these cries for injustice become worship. He enables me to go on the heights. The heights, those ramparts that require us to willfully climb up. God makes our feet like those of a sure-footed deer. 
treading above the rocky terrain of our perspective, treading above the rocky terrain of our insistence that justice looks the way that we want it to look, that treading above the rocky terrain of our impatience, because that's how much God wants us to know that when we pull the curtain back, he's not some weak or unjust God just blowing smoke and feeding us lies. He really is the just God that he says he is. And he really is the kind of just God that you and I most need. See, 600 years after Habakkuk penned this book, God wanted us to see beyond a shadow of a doubt the kind of just God he really is. That God met us on the heights. But it was a different set of heights. It was a mount where Jesus hung on a cross. And when he died, it says, Matthew's gospel, at that moment, the curtain of the temple, it wasn't pulled back. It was torn. It was torn in two from top to bottom. That Jesus came to earth, not simply to pull the curtain back that existed between us and God, but to tear that curtain for all time. Because if a just God rewards what is good and punishes what is evil, here's, here's what we have to remember we forget how much punishment our sinful lives deserve. And so the question isn't, why does a just God allow evil in our lives? The question really is, why does a just God allow any good in them at all? And the answer is because he isn't simply a just God, but he's a merciful one. He's a loving one. And this is why we celebrate communion. We remember his justice and we remember his love. It's to remember that the justice that we, de that we deserved is not the justice that we received. In fact, Paul to the church in Rome writes it like this. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, basically his patience. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That Jesus is both just and he is the justifier. That if we want to pull the curtain back, if we want to tear the curtain into, that what we see God is like as we see Jesus. We see his heart for us. And so communion helps us do that, that he received the punishment that we were due. There's no punishment left in God. And he assures us that God is, God has been, and God will continue to be making things right, beginning, friends, with you and with me. And so as we go into communion, the way that we the way that we do this here at Heartland, if you're newer here, is we have five stations around the room. And on each station, there is some juice and there's a bowl with, uh, a bowl with some juice in it. There's a, a, a bowl with some uh, crackers in it. There's some, if you would like the uh, individual cups, you can take one of those with you. All of this is gluten-free. And these things represent the body and the life of Jesus, which was given for you and for me. It represents the body that hung on the cross on top of the ramparts that give us the perspective of God's view into our lives. And whenever you're ready, you can come forward and you can receive these things. And if you're wondering who can receive communion, who can participate in what we're about to do here, uh, anyone can. Anyone can who realizes 
the grace that they're, they're in need of in their life. But before you come up here, here's what I wanna encourage you to do. It's just to ask yourself, where in your life do you need to be reminded that God is a just God? What's the situation in your life that you can bring to God like Habakkuk did and he can meet you in it, even if all you have for him are complaints? Here's the other question. How can you make your home on the heights with God? That God enables us. It's hard to climb up. We have to do it willfully, but God enables us to go on the heights. And maybe that's your prayer this morning as you come forward. God, would you enable me to go on the heights above my complaints, above my questions, not to get rid of them, but to meet you above them. And so Heavenly Father, I just pray for our church right now. I pray for those who are watching from home that the table that we are about to come to is a sacred one because it reminds us of your grace. It reminds us of your justice. And these are things that we need to be reminded of, God. And I thank you that what's behind this unjust world is not an unjust, chaotic, or erratic God. But God, we can have faith that it's a God who's everything that he says he is. And Jesus, your death on a cross and more importantly, your resurrection from the tomb. Oh, Lord, give us that assurance. That's all the evidence that we may need to consider to have that faith. And so we come to you now with hearts that are grateful, even if they're burdened by the injustice of this world. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.